There we are. We've got, we haven't done the feedback yet from the... Oh, there it is. <laughs> and it's still too close to my mouth. Alrighty. <sighs> How good is it that the Argents serve our church so amazingly? I was just sitting there looking at Lily, who's 16, and I can't sing and clap at the same time, but she's keezing and clapping, and Sarah keys and claps and runs and... All this stuff, all the thoughts are going into it. Yeah, I meant runs the service. <laughs> yeah, I, I I go walking with Sarah on the Sunday Saturday mornings that I um, can get myself out of bed, which turns out to be <laughs> few and far between. <laughs> but um, yeah, we don't run. Yeah. <laughs> Cool. Well, I completely forgot last week to do my general disclaimer that this material is not mine. It is Vaughan Roberts. If you have not got the notes and you would like some, I did collect some up last week because I thought I didn't want them to be trashed accidentally. Um, So, yeah, so this is Vaughan Roberts' material. He wrote a book a number of years ago now called God's Big Picture and he's subsequently done a whole series, um, a video series and um, with the small group notes and the sermon notes that you can follow along with or feel free to hide behind it as you go to sleep or doodle all over it whatever whatever works for you works for me so um I just wanted to offer that to you so that if you wanted to do the studies and stuff at home or with your small group or take notes I find that if I don't take notes of some description I get very very distracted so hence I handed out notes uh, the other thing to know is that this is um, stuff that I prepared for work. Um, so, and this is this is my jam. This is my pet topic. So the staff know that whenever the biblical theology stuff comes up, that that's, that's where I'm at. Um, so yeah. So because many of you in this congregation have paid me to be there. <laughs> this is material you paid for too. So if you would like to pay for the material um, by releasing me to go to work, um, by all means, um, do let me know um, so that students at Flinders get to hear this kind of stuff um, and, and get trained up um, really well. Oh, well, I'm, what I did was I offered something I'd already done so I could use it more than once. That was, that was, the, that was the best thing. And so I could do a nine-week sermon series without doing any real work. It was fantastic because it was already done. So we have... Who can remember what our first week was? Our first P was in the garden. It's right at the top of your pages. You don't, you don't have to look very far. The pattern. Perfect. Thanks, Anne. So we had the pattern of the kingdom. And can you remember, there's a little table that we've been working through that talks about God's people. Naomi's not even looking at notes. She's on it. In God's place. Oh, look at you. You're married to me. You, it's cheating. God's people in God's place under Perfect, Danny. Definitely no notes for you. Well done. So we had the pattern of the kingdom where we saw Adam and Eve in God's place. So God's people, Adam and Eve in God's place, the Garden of Eden, under God's rule and blessing. They had perfect relationship with him and with each other and with the ground that they were living in. And then we got to last week and what happened? They sinned. (laughs) And so the kingdom became the P... 
Excellent. It died. Um, So, yeah, it all went wrong. They ate the fruit that they were told not to eat. Um, They were then ejected from the garden. Um, They were cursed. Um, And and things went wrong, very wrong, from then on. Um, One of the reasons why we would do a survey like this, and I mentioned it in week one, is that this, as I said then, this series is not so much a preaching series but more a teaching series only because there's less exhortation in it and a lot more information Um, and part of why I'm quite happy to do that is because Paul in his prayers to the New Testament church often talked about how he wanted the people that he was ministering to even from a distance which is why he was writing in his letters he wanted them to grow in knowledge and understanding so that their love of Christ and his works could grow and so that they'll grow in maturity and in leadership in the church so this is one of the reasons why I um, I wanted to do this series because it's just important sometimes to enmesh ourselves in the education stuff but because as Christians we have the Holy Spirit in us the Holy Spirit helps to ground that as knowledge that goes beyond what we can explain or understand it becomes so indwelt and experiential that um that we then just exude what we learn. So whilst we're learning up here, the Holy Spirit is doing his work and it should hopefully, if we're keen and if we're cooperative, it will come out as um, faith works. So that is why we're doing it this way. Um, I have no problem with preaching, which could get a whole lot of dislike. Hello, internet. Um, but, um, But this is not so much a preaching series. It is a teaching series, even though I would do either. Alrighty. So, with all that, so we start this week with the promised kingdom, which is our point of light that comes after the perished that we had last week, which we left in a fairly down place of sadness and despair. Um, So, uh, but we, we needn't despair because God's eternal plan was there and ready to be enacted. So Ephesians 1.10 is our first verse. Um, so these things happened um, and were to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfilment, so at the, in the last days, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. So that has always been the plan. Um, it was never, never plan B, always, from moment one when Jesus was there in creation. Let us, let us as the Trinity make man in our image. Um, the Spirit and Jesus were with um, the Father in the beginning of the creation. Um, and before that too. So when we say that that's a God's eternal plan, then the question becomes, why did the fall have to happen at all? Why did God need this plan? Um, Why did he allow it to happen? Why didn't he just let things go as they were and not put that tree in the garden? Why would he do that? Now, as we talked about last week when we talked about the fall of Satan and um, the fact that he was an angel that was in the realms with the Father and uh, with God and that he chose power for himself and so God kicked him out of the heavenly realms and he ended up on earth. Um, What we see from that is that God isn't responsible for evil but he is sovereign over it. He still has power over Satan. It wasn't him that initiated that power, it was Satan who tried to claim it for himself. 
He isn't responsible for evil, but he is sovereign over it. And that also means that nothing takes him by surprise. This was not, ah, that wasn't supposed to happen. I often say that to my students. I'm like, you may have failed an assignment, but God's not going, oh, everything's ruined now. Like, he knew it was going to happen. <laughs> He's not shocked. You'll get through it. Nothing takes him by surprise. He will defeat evil and he will restore creation. So he has both the power and the desire. And we see that in his, um, the, the following on from the curse that he gives in Genesis 3. So he will defeat evil and restore creation. Now, as I said last week, we get all this darkness. We see all the points where humans fail and try to do things for themselves and kill each other and build towers and do all the things that they're not supposed to. Um, despite that dire situation, which we're still in for a long time to come, and they were in for a long time to come. So that dire situation continues through the whole Old Testament and keeps going. There are definite points of light, as I said. So what we've got is that pattern of sin, where humans commit some sort of sinful act. We get the judgment of God and we get the grace. So in the, for the example of Adam and Eve in the garden, they ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They were condemned to death. They were ejected from the garden so they no longer had access to the tree of life. But they were given grace. God came looking for them. He knew what they'd done. He didn't need to ask them. They hid from him. It was totally ridiculous. He created the whole universe. He didn't need to go looking for them. But he went looking for them. And when he saw that they were ashamed, he covered their shame with clothes. He created clothes out of skins for them and then sent them out of the garden. Which again, as I said, was a gracious point as well because he didn't give them access to eternal life in this apartness and sinfulness and brokenness. Now, one of the interesting things is that until that point, I don't know if you've noticed, but in Genesis, it talks about how there are animals and there are plants that are good for food. And so the implication is that at no point have humans actually eaten animals. And so when God makes clothes out of animal skins, the first death happens. And first, it's the first time that the death of an animal covers our shame. So the clothes are made from the skins of the animals that have died to cover the shame of the people who feel embarrassed about their nakedness. And that's the pattern that also... There's so much pattern in Genesis 1 to 2. It's amazing. J.K. Rowling, eat your heart out. Like, the, like, the bite... Like, oh, it's so intricate. It's amazing. There's no loose end ever. They're all... It's incredible. Once you start looking, you can't not see them. So... Um, so then we've got, we've got that gracious element, but then we also have in Genesis 3.15, um, our next verse, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. This is the serpent he's talking to in the curse. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now we know that that's Jesus, that he defeats Satan at the cross 
and the job is finished on his return. So he's defeated Satan, but Satan's still kicking away. Um, But the job will be finished on Jesus' return. So that's the thing that then we're looking forward to. That's where God has already said, Jesus is on his way. He will defeat this evil. And so we see in Romans 16.20 then, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That's how we know it hasn't yet been totally finished because Jesus hasn't returned. Paul is saying that's still a time that we're waiting for. So while Satan has been defeated at the cross, he's still doing bits and pieces, trying to keep God's people away from him. But he will soon crush Satan under your feet when he returns. So, the next step we've got is the protection of Noah's family. So in Genesis 6 to 8, 6, 8, sorry, we've got Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. So Noah found favour not because he was a good man, but he just found favour. He was a man who lived. He wasn't held up as a, a great leader of his people. He just found favour. God picked him. So the protection of Noah's family, a sinful family. Noah was a human being on the earth. We read in um, Genesis 6, not 6, 8, 6, 6, 6, 5, I think it was, um, that the, the God looked and he found that every inclination of every human heart was only evil all the time. That includes Noah. He was in the every. Oh, rude. <laughs> okay. There is some element. Okay, I stand corrected. Thank you, Anne. Anyone else? Feel free to heckle. <sighs> Still sinful. Yep, I know, totally. I'm loving you too, Anne. (laughs) (laughs) Look at Michael. Awesome. (laughs) Who needs the internet when you've got people in the actual church? I love it. Okay. He was sinful, righteous, (laughs) but still sinful. Um, so he protected Noah's family. So he took, I will, he, um, he took Noah and his wife and his sons and their wives. He told them what to do. He sort of closed them into the, into the ark and away they went. And then when the water receded and uh, the, the, um, the land reappeared and the boat stopped on the mountain... Genesis 6.18 says, I will establish, sorry, beforehand, I will establish my covenant with you and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And so we've got the first instance of covenant coming, this agreement that he makes. It's a solemn commitment, a covenant. Um, It's the same word that's used for testament. So we've got old covenant, new covenant is another way of looking at those words. Um, it's a solemn commitment. It's sealed in blood. Um, and so when Noah comes out of the ark, the first thing he does is make sacrifice. Um, 
And it's given with a sign. So with the rainbow, it, it's with the ark, it's the rainbow that is the sign to say, this is, this is the agreement that I have with you. And so Genesis 9.15, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. So that agreement is set in stone. Um, and that is one, there are two different types of covenant uh, in the Bible. One is a conditional covenant and one is an unconditional covenant. This is an unconditional covenant. God has said, I will never do that again. The conditional covenants are things like the law that he gives in, at, at Mount Sinai when he says, if you obey these laws, you will be my people. So we've got conditional covenants and non-conditional covenants. This is a non-conditional covenant. Okie dokie. So we keep having this sort of up and down, up and down, up and down, and we end with the Tower of Babel at Genesis chapter 11, which is where we ended last week. They built this tower. They said, let us make a name for ourselves, and then God scattered them. So we've got the Tower of Babel. The judgment occurs by the scattering of the nations, and we have to wait until the next chapter for a new generation and this is when Abram comes on the scene. Now this is another instance where Abram is chosen because of God's grace alone. He's no better than anybody else. He just is chosen. The promises that are given in Genesis chapter 12 verses 1 to 3 set the agenda for the rest of the Bible. So this is where it is spelled out that God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. We see the seed of the gospel planted in that promise and it's fleshed out the rest of the way through the Old Testament and it's fulfilled by Christ. So when we read Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, this is the promise that the whole Bible pivots on. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So we've got, go from your country to the land I will show you, so you'll be in my place. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. You'll be under my blessing. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So they're God's people. So, Genesis 12, 2 and 17, 7, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. He also says a bit later, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you, for the generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. So they're set apart by the circumcision and he said, I will be your God and you will be my people forever and ever and ever and ever and ever of the descendants after you, which is massive. The land... Canaan is the promised land, Genesis 12, 1, 7 and 17, 8. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, 
to your offspring I will give this land. The whole land of Canaan where you now reside as a foreigner I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you and I will be their God. So there's that promise of place. And the blessing, Genesis 12, 2 and 3, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So it's not just Abram or Abraham as he later comes to be known, but all nations. Now one of the things that blows my mind with this, and this is where I depart from Vaughan's stuff and go a bit more personal, I read this book for the first time when I was in my first year Old Testament Bible study, Bible college topic. It was the set text. And I went in as a four-year-old Christian and I knew nothing. Um, And I also didn't really understand what kind of possible relevance the Old Testament could have. And I just remember reading this and then shortly afterwards, which I don't have in my notes, but Genesis 15.5, it says, "When, um, when Abram's decided that God's not doing things as he thinks he should and so he thinks he might jumpstart things by actually trying to have kids with his, um, his wife's servant rather than his wife. God took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And it was a bit like Sarah's iPad moment. <laughs> today. I was like, how neat is this? Um, When she saw herself in the iPad and she said, you are a child of God. And I had this moment where I thought, when God pointed up to all the stars in the heavens, one of them was me. And one of them was Danny. And one of them was Rowan. And the cars. (laughs) And one of them was Anne. And I just think, How insane that even back when God was promising Abraham that, God knew that we would be included in those descendants before we'd ever even begun to be considered to existing ever. I just found that extraordinary. And suddenly the whole Old Testament suddenly became mine because I was there. We outnumber the sands of the seashore. And we were there back then. And so this becomes our history. And that rocks my world. (laughs) Because suddenly I'm like, oh yeah, great-great-granddad Abraham. And the kids' song, I don't know if you ever did it, that Father Abraham has many sons, which is ridiculous, but has actually incredible truth in it. I am one of them and so are you. (laughs) So let's all praise the Lord. Right on. Just insane. Blew my mind. But then the other thing is that a friend um, at one stage was sort of processing some stuff and he said, isn't it amazing that not only did God make us and go, yep, you're worth making, I'll keep you, but actually... He started creating at a point 
and he will stop creating at a point, and so there is a finite number of people that he will make, and in that finite number, he still thought, we, we are worth making. We have a part to play in his mission in the world. I think that is extraordinary. When I look in the reflection of my iPad <laughs> and God goes, I knew who you were going to be when I promised Abram, when only the, every inclination of the human heart was only evil all the time. I knew that you were going to be there. I made you, even though I had limited time to do it, I still decided that you were worth it. And now <laughs> we live when we do, when we know that Jesus died, and we can have his Holy Spirit, and we can live reading the word, and we can live this side of the cross and know the hope that comes as a result of that. I just think that's totally ridiculous and so amazing at the same time. Anyway, the other thing that's really neat. <laughs> See, like I said, J.K. Rowling's got nothing. One of my lecturers was a scientist as well, and his favourite thing was that he used to say that we're made of star stuff because the carbon, carbon that's on the earth came originally from the stars and because we're made of mostly carbon, somebody who's medical, Anne, help me. <laughs> and so, so we're made of star stuff. I just believed him. He's a scientist. We're made of star... A PhD in science. We're made of star stuff. And so God, look up at the stars and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And he said to him, so your, shall your offspring be? So some of those stars might actually... We've got those bits in us. So cool. So cool. All righty. I'm finishing early. Who would have thought? <laughs> Sorry, not you. <laughs> oh, nobody's more shocked than me. So, where we're at. We've got the kingdom of God. Uh, God's people are Abraham's descendants. We've got God's place, the promised land of Canaan, that they're going to be going to. We've got God's rule and blessing. So they're going to be a blessing to Israel and to the nations, and they'll be under God's rule. So we've got this, this promise that then, like I said, the whole of the rest of the Old Testament and the New Testament is the outworking of that promise of us getting to that place where we are God's people, in God's place, under God's rule and blessing. So we see in Genesis 15 to 6, 15, 6 Abram believed the Lord and he credited it, credited it to him as righteousness. So again, not because he was a good man, but because he believed the word of the Lord, Lord, it was credited to him as righteousness. So just like with us, we know that the second we come to Christ and that we believe in him, that is credited to us as righteousness, but we don't automatically become amazing people. We don't automatically become sinless in our actual day-to-day -day interactions and lives. We have righteousness credited to us because of what Jesus did on the cross, but we don't have that in our regular experience. So just like Noah was credited... Noah, Abraham was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham still... <laughs> had some hiccups, um, 
And, so, and one of the great things about the scriptures is that it shows us people in their humanity, not their perfection, but in their humanity. And so Abraham then goes on to live a deeply human life, um, a deeply flawed life. Um, and one of the things that's tricky sometimes with, um, with Genesis um, and others of the, um, the narrative books of the Bible is that there's very little, um, very little narration as to what's okay and what's not. We're just told. And sometimes there's a judgment from God and that says, oh, that was a bad idea, okay. And sometimes there just isn't. And we're supposed to know the context to be able to go, oh, that wasn't a good idea. I know that because I am a 6th BC Israelite who is reading these scriptures knowing what the societal norms were and what God would normally expect from our community. So sometimes they can be a bit tricky because we read this stuff and we've got no idea whether he's actually being held up as an example or whether we should know intrinsically that... That was a bad idea. Um, but I can tell you, Abraham did some good stuff and he did some not-so-clever stuff. Um, so next week, Unit 4. This is tricky. I've just realised, as I was sitting here, I was like, this is going to be great. We've got week 4, which is the first half <laughs> of the partial kingdom. And then we've got Easter. And then the weekend after is the second half of the partial kingdom. I'm like, of all the weeks we could have had it land. But that'll just leave you on tenterhooks. So, yeah. So we'll do the first. <laughs> because you'll be pleased to know we accelerate. So we've spent... Three weeks in Genesis. Um, we now go to up until the end of Leviticus. Um, and then the next one is right through to King, 1 Kings 11, I think. So we are accelerating. We don't spend anywhere near as much time in one book as we do in Genesis. So it's not going to take us 11 billion weeks to get where we're going. <laughs> So, so look forward to that. We will, um, yeah, be looking at how that, how those promises to Abraham start to work out. Um, but let's pray, and then we'll have a chat to each other and describe all the things that we are learning and inspired by from Genesis. Because it's so good. Okay, <laughs> Lord Jesus, we thank you that you were there in the beginning. We thank you that before the world or the universe was created, that you were good, that you were worthy of worship before you made anything, that you were so full of love that it overflowed into a desire to make the world that we live in. And we're sorry that we make choices all the time that suggest that we don't care or that we're not interested or that we don't trust you. We thank you that we know that's not where we're stuck. We thank you that you have made a way that from the very beginning you were always, always going to come and save us.
We thank you for your word, that we can see the ways that you have interacted with your world, how you have spoken to your people, how you have shaped and guided, how you have shown grace and judgment, deserved judgment and undeserved grace. We thank you that you saw fit to create us and every other person that we come into contact with because all of us have dignity and value and worth because you have deemed it to be so. We thank you that we have the honour of living this side of the cross so that we can know by your spirit where we stand, that we are righteous not because of what we have done but because of what you did in dying on the cross and rising again. We look forward to a time when we get to stand with all people throughout all time who have seen that truth and that we get to worship you as you should be worshipped. We thank you for all of that. And we thank you that the Spirit, when that is too big or too hard or too raw for us to express, that your Spirit intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And we thank you that because you stand in our stead, the Father hears our prayers and responds. So we thank you for today. We thank you for what we've learnt. But most of all, we thank you for who you are and what you mean to us and to so many, many, many others across time and across place. We pray these things in your name. Amen. See, when you're a lengthy prayer, you make up some time. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, everyone. Over to you.